Well, good morning. It's good to see you here at church, at Anchor Church. Great that you could join us. Um, my name is Matt, and I'm pastor here at this wonderful, wonderful little faith-filled church. Such a privilege. Um, we've uh, been working our way through Luke's gospel. We've been um, looking at a series called Good News to the Poor. I feel like I move this every week, Dave, and I don't know what I'm doing, but can I pull it down? Yeah. Um, we're working our way through Luke, and uh, I'm excited to be preaching from God's Word this morning. I'm going to pray for us. If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 3. Maybe you want to get there on your phone or your device. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3 together this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love to give you one as a gift. We've got them on our welcome desk, so you can go and grab one this morning. It's our gift to you. But Luke chapter 3, I'm going to pray for us as we come before God in His Word. Father God, we thank you that this word is living and active, that what we do this morning is sit humbly underneath this word as you speak to us and as your spirit works in our hearts, we pray that we would have soft hearts and soft minds to hear what you want to say to us to this, to this morning. And I pray that every person that's walked through these doors, we personally convicted, would meet Jesus and would leave here radically transformed and changed people. We pray this in the powerful name of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Come on. Amen. That's it. Good. Thank you. Now, it's, um, it's Brad's birthday today, so happy birthday, Brad. And it's Steve's birthday at the back, so happy birthday, Steve, for yesterday. There's probably a couple of others that I've missed, but anyway. Hey, yeah, last week I mentioned that I'd been looking at some research that a company had done into the perception of church in our city and in our nation. And if you're interested in finding out more about it, you can Google Olive Tree Media. They've done a great little research project in the perception of Christianity, the perception of church in our city. And one of the things that they, uh, one of the questions that they asked people in this survey was, what are some of the blockers to faith for you? What are some of the things that prevent you from going to church, prevent you from believing in the Christian message, stop you from wanting to engage with Christian people. And here is a list of 10 things, the top 10 things that people said were the biggest blockers to faith for them. And this is in no particular order because I actually think in our city at least, number nine is going to be the, the, most, um, the biggest blocker for most people. But here we go. Number one is church abuse. And that, that, that's right. Our, the church by and large, has failed the people it should have protected most. And so these commissions that are happening at the moment are, are God's gift to shine a light on sin that has existed in the church. church. That's right. Church abuse should put people off coming to church and having faith in Jesus. It's shocking what has been done, and the church needs to own that. Number two is hypocrisy. Number three is judging others. Number four is religious views. Number five is suffering. Number six is issues around money. Number seven is it's just outdated. Number eight is uh, talk of hell and condemnation. Number nine is homosexuality. And number 10 is exclusivity. And the one I want to focus on this morning is the issue of hypocrisy. 68% of people in this survey said that um, Christian hypocrisy was either a massive or a significant blocker for them coming to faith, for them coming to church, for them interacting with Christian people. That means that more than two out of every three people that you meet will be put off because of Christian hypocrisy, because of the way that the church lives their life that's disjointed from what they say they believe. Now, I want to know what happened to the other 32%. Did they, well, does hypocrisy not phase them? 
Well, chances are the other 32% are mostly made up of Christians who already go to church. Isn't that interesting? Now, you might not call yourself a believer here this morning. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You think, yeah, actually, that resonates with me. I do see this disjoint. Maybe the experience of church you've had growing up just seemed totally hypocritical to you. Maybe you're a Christian and you're like, yes, I can't stand hypocritical Christians. Just don't say that too loud. It might come back to bite you one day. But it's true. Hypocrisy puts us off. It doesn't matter what you believe or who you are. And so this morning, I want to look at this issue of hypocrisy. And we're going to do that by examining John the Baptist. This is the, the guy that the angel Gabriel showed up and told Zechariah about. We're going to look at John, the man, the mission, and the message. You would be forgiven for, for, um, for thinking that John is a total PR disaster. right? He comes and he's wearing camel's hair. He's eating locusts. He's in the desert. He's yelling judgment. He's baptizing Jews. He's accusing kings and and if you're like the, the marketing manager of this PR company that's organizing this setup for Jesus, John the Baptist is just not the guy to be the face of the campaign, right? He's crazy. And yet, that's who God picks because God's got a plan and he knows what he's doing. John the Baptist is predicted of by the angel Gabriel that he would be great in the eyes of the Lord. And it's in fact Jesus who says of John the Baptist that there are none born of woman greater than John the Baptist. And yet this man, John the Baptist, says there are some significant differences between me and the one who is coming after me. And two things in particular. The first, he says, is the biggest difference is between our identity and the second difference is between our ministry. So let's have a look at verse 15. This is what it says on the screen. Verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ, that is, the promised one. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There is an obvious buzz around Jerusalem at this time that God might be about to do something big, that, that the Messiah might be about to come. And these people wonder if John the Baptist is the one. Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that the prophets have been speaking about and promising for centuries before? And there's this excitement and John says, no, it's not me. In fact, it's astonishing what John says. Let's have that verse back up there again. Verse 16, he says, but one more powerful than I will come the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. That's Siri. That's, that's humility. That's humility. There, there was a saying that existed in um, the first century that went like this. Every duty that a slave performed for his master, a disciple was to perform for his teacher, except the duty of bending down and loosening the thong on their sandal. Right? That, that job there was considered too lowly for a, a disciple to do for their teacher, but that job was reserved for slaves only. It's too menial. It's too low. And so what John is saying is that he's not even worthy to perform a slave's duty for Jesus. He's not worthy to bend down and untie his sandals to perform the lowliest of tasks. Now, I don't know about you, but as I think of that and Jesus bending down to wash his disciples' feet, it kind of makes that really powerful, doesn't it, when you view it in light of this word. But John says, you know what, I get who Jesus is. I am, I am less than a slave. Jesus is king of kings. 
I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one. In fact, John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. That's my ministry. And so there is a, a difference in identity, a big difference in identity. But there's also a difference in their ministry. You notice John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water. But he, when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What John's baptism merely symbolized, Jesus' baptism actually achieves. A baptism of the Holy Spirit and a baptism of fire. What does that mean? Baptism of the Holy Spirit talks of regeneration. It talks of that moment when, when God opens blind eyes, like we spoke about last week. It talks of that moment when God removes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh where God moves us from death to life spiritually. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. The baptism of fire, we often use that, that phrase to talk about you know, throwing someone in the deep end or if they've walked through a season of adversity, it's like they've had a baptism of fire. And you know, the, the young debutant in the state of origin has a baptism of fire. And, but, but what it means here is that, and how good was New South Wales winning the state of origin? Ah, so good. Last time they won, I couldn't preach. It was 2005 and I was woeful. But anyway, <laughs> baptism of fire here is um, what it speaks of is the purging work of the Holy Spirit, of his purifying work in someone's life as he takes someone and transforms them and makes them more and more like Jesus. In technical theological terms, baptism of the Spirit is what they call regeneration and the baptism of fire is what they call progressive sanctification. And John says, that's Jesus' ministry. He's going to come and do that. I'm just doing the symbol of it. I'm just baptizing with water. And so that's John, the man. He's but less than a servant. And Jesus is king of kings. But what about his, his mission? This is his mission. Back in Luke chapter 1, 17, um, the angel Gabriel said to Zechariah that your son will be great in the eyes of the Lord and he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's his job. That's his mission, to prepare people. And so we flick to chapter 3, verse 2, and this is what it says. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in and every hill and mountain made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. It was very common amongst the cultures of the first century, whether it was a, a Roman culture or a Jewish culture, that in preparation for a royal visit, the road would be, would be remade. And sometimes a road would actually be constructed so that this king or queen, whoever it was that was coming, could come in full pomp and ceremony and celebration that was deserving of this person coming to the city. And so as Isaiah has this, this prophecy, this vision, he's got that idea in mind. This, this roadworks that are happening in, in preparation for the arrival of a king. The only problem is Isaiah's vision is so much grander than that. I mean, he sees a highway through the wilderness. And so John's role there is much like a bulldozer. Mountains being bulldozed down, valleys being filled in, crooked roads being made straight. There are spiritual roadworks ahead. As the proud are brought low, as the humble are exalted, as repentance straightens out the crooked. That's John's ministry. That's what he's to do. He's to prepare hearts. He's to clear the way. And he does that with a message of repentance 
for forgiveness of sins. And he comes and he baptizes people as a symbol of that heart response of repentance to God. That's his mission. Prepare the way for Jesus. Get people ready for the arrival of the king. But what is his message? His message is this, verse 7. This is what it says. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, that is not exactly a term of endearment, right? You snake. It's not friendly. But, I mean, ever since Genesis chapter 3, ever since the devil appeared in the garden as a serpent deceived Eve, snakes have pretty much had a bad reputation throughout the Scriptures, pretty much universally, apart from that time where there's the snake on the pole and Israel have to look to the snake for healing. Apart from that, I think every other reference to a snake is talking about the enemies of God. And so when John comes and says, You snakes! Right, he's, that's not friendly. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Clearly, John the Baptist has got an issue here, right? He's got an issue with people bandwagoning. There is this growing sense that God is working, that even the day of the Lord might be coming, and, and, and people who were switched on knew that that was a day of judgment. And so these people come to be baptized, and, and John sees this baptism of repentance happening, but he sees that there's no heart behind it. He sees these people saying one thing, but there's no evidence of repentance. There's no sign of a changed life. There's no, there's no display of the Spirit working in them. You see, the problem is that the crowds felt that they had God cornered. Did, did you see where they had their confidence there? They say, hang on, we've got Abraham as our father. I mean, we're God's people. He's made promises to us. And so we can live however we want because God made a promise. And God's not going to make his promise, is he? He's not going to break it. Loophole. We can live however we that, That's the problem that John identifies with these people. And he says, you know what? You can't do that. You can't just draw this elaborate family tree all the way back to Father Abraham and say, look, we're in. Because in the end, it's not actually about heritage. It's about the heart. That's always been about the heart. It's been about the heart in the old covenant. It's about the heart in the times of Jesus. It's about the heart now. It's always about people's heart response. And so what that means is that you're not automatically a Christian. You don't just automatically become a Christian, born a Christian. You have to be born again a Christian. You're not a Christian because of your race. It's not about your lineage. It's not about your, uh, your family. It's not about the country that you're born in. You know, almost every other religion globally is tied, predominantly tied to ethnicity. But Christianity is not tied to ethnicity. It's tied to a faith response to Jesus. Have we repented? Have we believed? So the question is, what is repentance? What is this, this religious word that we keep using, that John keeps talking about? Well, I want to start by saying a few things about what repentance is not. Repentance is not merely conviction. Right? It's not merely a sense that, oh yeah, that, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And I feel bad about it. Right? That, that's not what repentance is. It's not merely conviction. Secondly, repentance is not merely remorse, that you realize that you've sinned and you, and you just feel bad about it for a really long time. You, you feel remorse over it. It's not just remorse. Thirdly, repentance is not just confession. That is, you 
have a conviction of sin and you feel bad about it and then you confess it and you get it off your chest and you feel better about yourself until the next time that you do that and repeat the process, right? It's not merely just confession. And fourthly, it's not merely just behavior modification. That is, you feel bad about the sin, you confess it, and then you try really, really, really hard not to do that sin again. And unfortunately, the world that watches the church, and, and, and even worse, sometimes people within the church, just reduce repentance to one of those things. But repentance is when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and shows that sin to you, and you feel not just remorse, but you feel godly sorrow over that sin that leads you coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, please forgive me for that sin, and he forgives you, and then the Holy Spirit changes you and transforms you. It's, it's a whole process. It, it's not just turning away from God. That whole process is involved in what, in what repentance is. And you notice John the Baptist here has got a problem with false repentance, these people come to him and he says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? These people are coming because they seem to be afraid of what might lie ahead. And yet, there's no real heart change in them. I remember um, talking to a youth group kid once and saying to them, why, why are you a Christian? They said to me, oh, I'm a Christian because, um, well, really, I, I don't want to go to hell. And I was like, is that it? <laughs> is that like only reason you want to? Worship, follow Jesus, give your life to Him. You know, that, there's a big difference between false repentance and true repentance. False repentance is when you repent of the consequences of the sin. That's it. It's just like, oh, I want to avoid the judgment. I want to avoid the punishment. I want to avoid the penalty of that. And so I'm sorry because I, I've got to face that now. Whereas true repentance is that you're actually sorry for the sin itself because the sin breaks the heart of God that you love, that you worship, that you're in relationship with who created you and made you. See, if we only ever repent and are sorry for the, for, for the consequences of sin, in the end, that's selfish repentance because it's about us when this is really all about God. John's point is, if you're real about this, if this, if this really does, if you really do believe this, then it ought to change you there ought to be an evidence of this in your life. He says it, it, there should be fruit. The apple, tree, the apple tree produces apples. You should be able to see that. And if it's not, he says, cut it down, throw it in the fire. It's, it's useless. It's used, used for firewood. And so the question for us this morning is, does your life demonstrate that Jesus has captured your heart, that Jesus owns your life, that Jesus is your King and your Lord and your... Does, does your life demonstrate that? You see, we know that there is this obvious link between belief and behavior. I mean, it's, it's almost intrinsic to us. And let me give you an example of that. You know when you go to Macca's with friends and maybe it's um, late night, come back from the origin, stop at Macca's, get some food and you order a Happy Meal and you get a thick shake with it because the Coke is a bit boring and it's too late for caffeine and sugar anyway. So you get a thick shake and you eat your Happy Meal and then you're like, oh, I need to go to the toilet. You go to the toilet and you come back and all of your friends are sitting there looking very sheepish and you're like, what did you guys do to my thick shake? Now I got nothing. It's fine. It's fine. And you look in it. It looks fine. You put it back on and you go to have a drink and the guy next to you is like... And you're like, what did you guys do? Like, Nothing. And you say, all right, if you didn't do anything, have a drink. I'm like, I'm not drinking the thick shake. You're like, well, if you're not going to drink it, I'm not going to drink it. Because your actions betray what you really believe about this thick shake. 
It's not safe to drink. If it's safe to drink, you would drink it. And that's John's point. If you really... Not about the thick shake, anyway. All right. Think of a better illustration next time. John's point is that the things that you believe ought to work their way down to your heart and to your hands. You should be able to see that in your life. And as John tells the people this, they're, they're actually genuinely moved. There is a response. And so in verse 10, these people, three groups of people come to John the Baptist and they ask what they ought to do. This is what it says. Verse 10. What should we do then? The crowds asked. John answered, The man who has two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. And tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, What should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And then some soldiers came and said, And what should we do? He replied, Don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Three times, people come with this question, What should we do? What should we do? What should we do? The answer every time is, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Show, show that there is a demonstration that Jesus owns your life. The crowds come and they say, Jesus, what should we do? And, and he says, care for the poor. Look after them. If you've got two tunics, give them one. If you've got food, give them some food. Now, I don't know about you, as I, I read that passage this week, I really sensed the conviction of the Spirit. Open my cupboard and, and I'm not being humorous here, open my cupboard and there's like eight jackets in there. And there are people in our city who freeze at night. Or, or sometimes I think to myself, oh, I've got a compassion child and that, that exonerates me from caring for the poor any more than I really need to. He says, care for the poor, look after them. God has blessed us to be a blessing to other people. And so this week in our gospel communities, what I want you guys to do is ask the question, God, what have you blessed us with? What have you given us that we can use to be a blessing to other people? That's what he says to the crowd. Secondly, the tax collectors and the soldiers come to, Jesus, uh, to John the Baptist and they say, what should we do? And John says, well, don't, don't use your power to rip people off. Don't extort people. Don't manipulate people. Both tax collectors and soldiers had unchecked authority, way too much power than they needed or deserved, and, and no one really checked what they did. And so they had this opportunity just to rip people off. And we know that that's how the tax collectors made their living and lined their pockets by ripping people off. And so John the Baptist comes and he says, don't do that. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't say, quit your job. He doesn't say to the tax collectors, that's an evil job. You should stop doing that. Quit. Go find a good job like being a fisherman. No, he, he doesn't say that. He says, no, do your job honestly. Don't rip people off. Be content with your pay. You know, in the end, God doesn't care so much about what you do. But he sure cares about how you do it. God doesn't care if you're a lawyer, if you're a musician, if you're a teacher, if you're an artist, if you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, if you're an accountant, if you're an IT, if you're a he doesn't care. But he does care how you exercise law and how you teach and how you go about your creative process and how you count all of those numbers and balance sheets. And he does care how we do what we do. So my question this morning is, what are the unique temptations for you in your job? What are the things in your industry, in your profession that are temptations? And maybe it's things that just everyone does. It's like, it's, this is just expected. Everyone does this, even though it's wrong. What are the unique temptations in your job? And what would it look like for you to live a radically transformed life? To be a light in your profession, in your industry, in your workplace.
I was thinking about this for me personally. What, what, what is the temptation for me as a pastor? And you know, it, it is really easy to be a hypocrite as a pastor. It is super easy. The definition of a hypocrite is someone who pretends, someone who acts. It's easy for a pastor to have a professional face. I'm here preaching and, and then to have this private face that's totally different. Have a, a total disjoint between my private life and my public life. I spend all of my week, well not all of it, half of my week with my head buried in the Bible, head in books, reading, preparing to, to speak to you. But if, if the message that I'm preparing doesn't convict me and change me and lead me to repentance and cause me to fall on my knees and plead with God that He would change me and make me more, if that doesn't happen in my heart, then I'm a hypocrite. And I come here and I preach to you guys and I expect you to change and I don't have the, whole, the same standard for me. There's a real temptation for a pastor to do that. And so friends, family, if, if you see that in me, you will love Jesus and you will love his church by calling me on that sin. So Matt, I see a disjoint in you. The gospel calls us to live differently. What is it for you? What is, what is the unique temptation in your workplace, in your job, in your job that is easy for you to do? True repentance looks like transformed living. So in the end, the issue that John the Baptist is going after here is this, this attitude that says, you know, I can call myself a Christian and not live like it in any way. I can say that Jesus is my Lord and, and it doesn't really matter how I live. And, and we need to hear the warning of John. He says the axe is at the root of the tree. Every tree that doesn't bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so friends, if if you are not willing to change, if there is no evidence of transformation of your, in your life, if, if you have not sensed the conviction of the Spirit that has led to transformation and repentance and, and genuine life-changing repentance, then maybe it's an indication that Jesus hasn't got your heart. Transformed, uh, true repentance is a transformed life. But you, know, my, you might be thinking, well, that's just John just John, maybe he got it wrong. Well, let, let me just remind you a few other things and we'll start with Jesus because he's important, right? Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the, the, um, the Sermon on the Mount. These, these verses aren't on the slides. He says, he says this, every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree that does not bear fruit is cut down, thrown in the fire. By their fruit, you will recognize them. That's what he says. Or James, the brother of Jesus says, faith without deeds is dead. It's useless. Or John, the disciple, not John the Baptist, says this is love for God, that we would obey his commandments. Or Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is a transformed character. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's a transformed life. The message of the Bible is consistent. When you follow Jesus, everything changes, absolutely everything about our life. And so as we look at that, my question is, why is it that Christians, of all people, have the reputation for being hypocrites? And like, this isn't just an isolated thing. 68% of people said that is a massive or a significant blocker to them. Why, why is that? That people who love Jesus are known for being hypocrites. I'm going to suggest it's often because our belief and our behavior, just they don't match up. Because we have such a high standard for our beliefs and such a low standard for our behavior. 
And as people look at that, they can, I can see through that. Maybe it's time for us just to fess up and say, you know what, it's true. We are, we are hypocrites. Yeah, that's right. We can't live up to our standard. We can't live up to God's standard. And, and sometimes we hold people to a standard that's much higher than what we hold ourselves to. Yeah, we do that. Let's just fess up. TBH for a second. It's true. We are hypocrites. And we need Jesus to rescue us from that. But you know, John's message wasn't simply just a message of repentance. He also preached the good news to them. This is what it says in, in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. You might think, hang on a second, that's not good news. That sounds like judgment to me. And it is. This is a picture of a farmer separating the wheat from the chaff. What would happen is all of the grain would be brought into the, the barn and oxen would trample on that, that weed and then the farmer would pick up a fork and he would toss the grain in the air and the, the empty husk of the chaff would be blown off by the wind and the heavy grain would fall to the floor and would be gathered in and, and kept and stored. And John the Baptist, what he's doing here is he's not just preparing people for Jesus' coming, he's preparing people for Jesus' second coming. He says when Jesus comes back a second time, he's coming as judge. And he will gather to those who he's called to himself. And for those who are prepared, you need not fear. For those who have prepared their hearts and, and are ready to meet their king, Jesus says, welcome home. And so friends, my task this morning is really much the same as John the Baptist. He prepares people to meet Jesus. And that's my job to prepare you to meet Jesus, the King who is coming, who is returning. If you've not done that, if you're not ready for Jesus to come back, friends, there is no better today, day to do that than today, to come to Jesus, feel the conviction of the Spirit over your sin, to feel godly sorrow, to ask that Jesus would forgive you and allow the Holy Spirit to transform and change you. Today's a good day. You know that Jesus is the only one ever who is not a hypocrite. He never, ever, ever had a disjoint between his belief and his behavior. Jesus always practiced what he preached. Like people say a heap of things about Jesus. One thing you cannot say about Jesus is he was a hypocrite. He just wasn't. I mean, this Jesus, right, he said, turn the other cheek, right? Now that's a fairly hard one to keep your word on, right? Someone who strikes you on the left cheek, turn to him the other also. You know what? Jesus took that that teaching that he had, and he, he, he took it to another level. Because when people beat him and flogged him, he gave up his body to die on the cross for sin. Now, Jesus is perfectly righteous. The only person who has perfect integrity. He's not a hypocrite. And you know, if we're really honest, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, if we're really honest with ourselves, we're all hypocrites. You're a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. I can't live up to the standard that you have of me. I can live up to my own standard. You do the same. Every single one of us is a hypocrite. And so the question isn't, who's the hypocrite? The question is, what do I do with my hypocrisy? How do I deal with that? If that's a problem that everyone faces, the answer is to take that hypocrisy to the cross. Because it's there where Jesus the, the one with perfect integrity takes our hypocrisy upon himself and then gifts us his integrity 
and washes us clean. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. We take our hypocrisy to the foot of the cross and plead with Jesus that he would change us, make us more like him. And so, yeah, it's true. I'm a hypocrite. So are you. But Jesus has died to take that away. And the good news of the gospel is that we're clean. But you know, in the end, the real hypocrisy is actually pretending that you're okay. That's, that's hypocrisy, is, is continuing to say, I'm okay, I'm okay, even though you know that you're not. The great news about Jesus is that, there's no, that you don't need to pretend anymore. I mean, that's, that's what we're doing in this world, is, is we're just walking around pretending that everything's okay. Avoiding the thought that maybe one day something might go wrong with our health and, and we don't really know what's going to happen this side of death. And, and Jesus comes and says, it's okay, you don't need to pretend anymore. Because I've solved that problem and I've solved the one for you as well. Friends, that's the gospel. And we're going to celebrate that this morning as we respond in worship and respond by remembering what Jesus has done. We have a time of response. We've got two stations set up either side of the stage with grape juice and bread. Those two elements are symbols of what Jesus has done. His body is broken for us. His blood is spilt and shed for our forgiveness, for our hypocrisy. And so, friends, I want to invite you to take a moment to repent. Take a moment during this time of worship to respond to Jesus. Do business with God. And as your heart is ready, and as you feel led, come forward and remember what Jesus has done in these, in these symbols here. We're also going to have some opportunity for prayer. And Brad and myself will be out in the foyer here, and we would love to pray for people. But you know what? Like... We, ha- we have people there every week and hardly anyone comes for prayer. Why is that? I mean, we've got people who are willing to talk to the God of the universe on your behalf. And it doesn't have to be earth-shatteringly big. I mean, we would love to pray for you about anything. So please, let's, let's be a praying church. and Let's make the most of those people who would love to pray for you. You don't have to come and say a thing apart from please pray for this. You're not going to be asked to pray. We would just love to pray for you. Please make use of that. Brad and I will be there during the time of worship and response. So I'm going to ask the band to come up now. We're going to pray and we're going to respond. We're going to praise our God and thank Him for what He's done. So let me pray. Father God, we rejoice. We rejoice in Jesus, our Savior. We thank You that despite the fact that we're all hypocrites, Jesus was the one of perfect integrity who died on the cross in our place to take that sin away. And He's gifted us his integrity, that we could walk before you and you see Jesus. And Father, we pray as we respond to that gospel message that the response of our hearts would be one of genuine, true, real repentance. Jesus, we want to give you every corner of our life. We pray for those unique temptations in our workplace. We ask that we would be able to walk in the light. Please help us to live such phenomenal lives there that it would demand explanation that we would be able to say, Jesus makes me live like this. Father, work in our hearts now. Help us to respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.